Greetings, Archons. Welcome to Sanctimonious, a Keyforge podcast where two zealous Keyforge players discuss various topics regarding combat within the Crucible. Stand at attention and salute your hosts, Sir Jake Sir Alex. and Sir Dan. Welcome to another episode of Sanctimonious, a Keyforge podcast where our two zealous co-hosts, myself, <laughs> Alex Slotnick, and Jake Friedman, uh, are joined by the very talented Steve Hamilton, a.k.a. Balance Sheet, um, here to talk to us all about his art, um, uh, learn us something about... Uh, you know, uh, us uneducated uh, our art rubes uh, about what it means to be uh, an artist for a card game, what that's like. Um, he's been very kind and generous to give us his time. So a uh, huge thank you to you, Steve, for being here. Well, thanks for having me. I, as an artist working in this industry, especially with Keyboard because of all the fans and all the extra attention I've been getting lately, just by people who've seen my work and recognize it and appreciate it. I've, I've really, really enjoyed that. It makes me almost feel like a rock star sometimes when I go to certain conventions and people ask me to sign their cards. It's not something I'm used to. So, uh, no, I really appreciate the fans and yeah. I'd love to talk a bit about what I do and how I work for Fantasy Flight on this particular project and other projects as well. That sounds awesome. I'm really excited about this. As uh, somebody who's not super cultured in art, I'm going to kind of have to take the role of just eager student. Uh, yeah, just excited to hear what you have to say. Oh, no, that kind of puts me on the spot. I don't know that much about art. <laughs> we have some questions. We have some yeah, questions. yeah. Don't worry. If you want to, Steve, we usually do uh, what we call inspiration, where we just talk about something that is usually Keyforge related that is inspiring us in the particular week. Um, we, we can do that or we can just skip it. Up to you. We can do it. That's fine. Okay. I'll jump in there first. Um, let's see. This week, I'm inspired by just being pummeled, pummeled, absolutely pummeled by Ugluck, um from our Discord in Adaptive, just like over and over again. Uh, but it's encouraging to me to like be like, man, there's for, you know, because a lot of people think that Adaptive, they're like Adaptive is the most random format or variant uh you gotta call it a variant um and i don't know i just like there's something happening right there's something about what he understands about the game and what i understand about how to play adaptive that is there's a discrepancy in our skill levels right we're clearly one of us is superior in this in this variant so i think but i think that's really interesting it shows that there's like you know there's there's so much room left in the game for exploration. And I, I do love that. And I love when I love getting reminded of that. I know a lot of people, and we probably don't have time to get into this debate now, or we certainly don't, but I, I'm definitely on the side of things that I think adaptive is one of the more skill testing of all the variants. So that's, that's my quick two cents. But for me, I'll jump in real quickly with my inspiration. I was playing a rare game on the crucible and uh, testing out an adaptive deck for an upcoming tournament. Popped into the competitive queue and was paired against Corey Than, occupying uh, one Corey Than who occupies a really high spot on the leaderboard. I'm not sure exactly where he is, but I know he's been the number one player in the world at some point. He was playing a power level eight deck that I think he won a sealed vault tour with. It was a really fun game. I was playing a random adaptive deck, Worlds Collide with Brobnar. And what made it really fun is in the chat, I had uh, Nathan from Tabletop Royale in my corner. So he was able to feed me lines of play about my own deck through the chat. So it really felt like it was two against one. And it was a complete blast. I ended up just barely pulling out the win with my 70 SAS Worlds Collide deck. And I did manage to play NARP in that game and still won against Corey. So that's probably one of my crowning achievements as a Keyforge player. But truly, all the credit goes to Nathan, who was teaching me a thing or two about my own deck. It was a lot of fun. Well, for me, I guess, um, I don't get that many opportunities to play where I'm at. So I have to do things a little more vicariously. But it's a kind of a funny story. 
back in November or December, I got a contributor copy from Fantasy Flight Games for Worlds Collide, which was just a small Archon pack. I opened it up and I wasn't familiar that the SAS rankings had changed recently. So when I looked it up online and saw it was an 87, I thought it was the old system. I didn't realize how good it was. So I actually took it and played it with some kids down here. And I was like, wow, this deck is really good. Why is this so good? And then I take it online and I see how oh, it's great. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is way too good to be playing with. What am I doing? So uh, because I don't get too many opportunities to play where I'm at, I decided to auction it off. And uh, a good guy named Casey Smith in Texas picked up and won the auction. And ever since then, I've been checking in on him now and then, kind of like a, a father checking in on his kids to see how the deck's doing and how it's going. I have to kind of do things from a distance now, but I, I just recently saw on decks of Keyforge that it was like 11 to 2 in competitive matches, and it already has one power level and some chains on it. I think all oh, my little boy's growing up, so I'm still very attached to the deck. <laughs> not mine anymore, but it's just fun to watch other people and hopefully maybe take it pretty far down the line. I would love to see that happen. Just this random deck that I got as a contributor copy, it wasn't one of those special in-house ones with the little... That's custom names on it or anything. It was just a normal deck. I just happened to get really lucky, it looks like. So that's my little inspiring story. I feel like that's one of the uh, special, kind of like unique things. Like only in Keyforge can you keep track of your deck after yeah. it like leaves your yeah. collection. We can include that deck in the show notes of this podcast for other people who want to uh, follow along the deck's journey at home. <laughs> like sometimes it'll be on uh, the Crucible. And I'll see him playing and using the deck, and I'll hop in the server and say, hey, how's it going? <laughs> it's always a little awkward when he's not doing quite as well with it. But most of the time, I see him just trashing the enemy in there and beating up the opponent. It's just so fun. We'll jump into our main topic, which is uh, an interview with Steve um, and Steve. Uh, so we're just going to, I think you and me, Jake, we'll just kind of take turns asking our questions. And um, we usually try to go, try to keep around an hour. So we'll see how far we get uh, through the list. And uh, yeah, it should be fun. Um, so just, just the first thing that we wanted to know is just tell us about your history as an artist. How did you get into this? How did it become your profession? Um, just like kind of tell us about yourself and uh, what really brought you to kind of be doing this professionally? Well, when I was when I was a teenager, early teenage years, I wanted to be an architect. I know it's a completely unpractical, unrealistic career being an architect. Good thing I decided to be an artist instead, right? But I ended up watching the uh, Lord of the Rings making up documentaries. And I was just enthralled by the concept art and production art process of all that. So at the time, I really wanted to get into films and to be able to do something like that. But I got kind of uh, sidetracked along the way, not in a bad way, I don't think. But uh, when I was in college, I had a mentor who worked in the board games industry. And even though it wasn't something that really caught my eye at that point, he had worked with some pretty big companies and he was able to give me some really solid advice about how to get a footing in there. And at that point, when you're starting out, whatever you can get is good. I still hope to get into film someday. But it's a, it's a different kind of ball game from what I do right now. But ever since that guy helped uh, mentor me through things, he told me I needed to get to Gen Con, that I needed to meet certain people and start building up my own brand that way. And I've been kind of doing that ever since. I've only really been, I've been freelancing for about 10 years doing this since I graduated in 2010, professionally for about seven or eight years. And it's only been actually the last year and a half that I've been quote unquote, taking it seriously, because it's always been kind of a side thing for me before. I live in Mexico and I used to work at a shelter down here for abused families. And I've worked in a few other places down here as well. But this past couple of years or so, I've been kind of trying to do my own thing more. And while I still live here in Mexico, I'm trying to focus more on the freelancing end of things, which for me involves trying to score better clients, improve my portfolio and things like that. But Fantasy Flight's been keeping me so busy with a bunch of different projects, I haven't really had time to work on that yet. But that's kind of my background as an artist. Uh, I enjoy working in board games and I, I enjoy working for Fantasy Flight quite a bit. And I can explain why later, but uh, no artist, I don't think any artist is 
quite where they want to be. There's always looking at bigger clients, bigger projects, or more interesting stuff to work on. That being said, I really enjoy the Keyforge brand and being able to work on that because they allow me to let loose with my color palettes and be as colorful and crazy as I want. That's a big draw for me personally. Because usually they have to tell me to tone it down. But Keyforge, they don't care. It can be bright and colorful and wonderful. And I just love that kind of freedom that affords. Plus, it's not an established IP intellectual property, so I don't have to match everything super specific. They do give me style guides for different houses and things like that. But a lot of it's still pretty loose in certain aspects, and I can have a lot of freedom to do whatever I want, which is really fun. And it's been great being part of that brand since the get-go, since uh, Call of the Archons. I've been able to ride along through the whole process, and I'm hoping it continues to stay popular, continues to grow in the way it has been. Wow, that's uh, super interesting, and it gives me a lot to think about. It just sounds like kind of what they're asking artists to do mirrors what they want the game to look like and feel like and how we've heard them talk about the design mechanics as well. So that's really interesting. So I think we're going to touch on some of that a little bit more later. But before we kind of get into the that and the kind of constraints you're working under, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your personal style. And uh, I think you mentioned a little bit with the bright colors and stuff, but what you really you know, if you have something that you think are like more iconic to you, how we can recognize your pieces or anything like that. It's hard. It's often hard for artists to quantify their own style. Um, I'm not sure why. I've been beating my brains out about it since I started thinking about what quantifies my style. But I would just say bright colors, uh, sharp contrast where I can, sometimes a bit too saturated, possibly. I mean, you got to be careful with it. If you just go completely colorful and everything, it just nothing reads right so i've actually had to learn in the past few years to sometimes less is more but that being said i still push for more wherever i can wherever they allow me to but uh i think yeah color and i have a bit of a bloom sometimes that shows through my work where some of the edges get a little bit soft and the light kind of radiates around certain shapes but if people were trying to categorize it it would probably be based on my approach for colors and some, to some extent, my brushwork and a few other things that show through. But that'd be an interesting question for me to ask people personally. Put a bunch of Keyforge cards in front of them and say, you know, what's, what stands out about these? Or can you tell who is from the same artist just by looking at them? That'd be a fun exercise. I can think of one group of Keyforge players that I think would be super interested in giving you some feedback in our Discord. If you ever wanted to throw up some pictures or concepts or whatever i think you'd get some really good oh yeah from we, there's definitely some people on the discord who love who are really i think really probably more more so than not that i i think that either jake or i don't like it but it's like who are really just interested and maybe you're, i think probably some of the people in our discord are even artists themselves and so know a little bit more about what's going on and um I'm interested, like, what do you, what do you typically, I, this is not a question that we had planned, but I'm just interested, what do you usually work on? Do you, do you work on like uh, a tablet or like, how do you actually like sketch out all your art and draw it? Well, I have an old uh, Wacom Intuos 3 tablet, 9 by 12 that I use. I don't like their newer tablets very much. I stick with the older ones because the nibs don't wear out as quick, uh, but I do it all on PC and Photoshop. It's all almost all Photoshop. I do use some programs if I have like a really complicated piece of architecture or machinery that needs to be really precise. I'll use that to help mock up and also sometimes for planning lighting. But the bulk of it, I do in Photoshop, painting digitally. I don't have one of those fancy tablets where you can draw on the screen or anything just because I got bad eyes. I got to be careful about being super close to anything. So I like to sit back and work at a distance with more traditional tablets. But yeah. I, it's all the way Photoshop. I've been living and breathing Photoshop for the past, uh, since I was 14, so like 17 years now. Wow. Yeah. I know the whole program in and out of my heart. Even though I, I hate Adobe personally, just for their pricing schemes and their business <laughs> nowadays, uh, Photoshop's still my home and my baby, my breadwinner. As an IT person, I can I can very much uh, identify with your hatred of Adobe. I also hate Adobe. <laughs> It is quite, it is, it is a bane of my existence. Adobe is not a sponsor of this podcast, if you can tell. No. <laughs> Although, if you want to be a sponsor of Adobe, I will talk nicely about you. 
So, Steve, like, talk us through. So, we wanted to know, like, what's the life cycle of a piece? So, you have an idea. Do you do you get the idea first, or do they say we want we want art for this card? What's that process like? Um, just with FF, you know, with Fantasy Flight, and uh, from kind of the beginning stages to kind of the latter stages. Well, I can only speak for Fantasy Flight's process, but with a lot of companies like this, it's a fairly similar one. Uh, they're designers that come up with the cards and the mechanics on them. I don't know that end of the pipeline very much, but I do know that when it comes to deciding what actually goes on the cards, uh, they have this team of uh, freelance writers that usually do that. They come up with the prompts for the different cards. I don't know if the designers sometimes give them notes or they have ideas for anything. I'm not really sure about that, but I got to meet one of those freelance writers at Gen Con. It was really interesting to hear about the people that brainstorm all the prompts for these. What they'll do is they'll write the prompts and they'll send them to the art directors and the art directors will look at their pool of artists and decide who they want to invite on for the project. They have different rosters for different brands, a different list for X-Wing, a different list for Armada, a different list for the Marvel game they're working on. I don't know who's doing the art for that. And their list for Keyforge, and it's usually specialized with people that they know can work well with that given brand. And they'll take new artists in from time to time, but usually they stick with the people that they know can do a good job with it. And they'll take a look at their roster. They'll see who they want to invite for the project. And they'll send out an email to all those artists saying, hey, we're starting such and such new project. These are our timelines. They'll give a deadline for sketches when sketches need to be turned in and the final deadline. And then they'll ask us, uh, let us know if you're interested and how many pieces you would feel comfortable taking in this timeline. And I'll respond. I'll tell them, hey, thanks for having me on. I'll take, I don't know, five or six paintings for this set. I have to look at my schedule and see whether I, how much I think I can fit in and not go crazy. Sometimes I overdo it, though, especially if it's a project I'm excited about. I'm like, I'll take, I'll take 20 of those. <laughs> Sometimes they just say, no, we know you can't do that. <laughs> and they'll give me a lower one. But I've bitten off more than I can chew, more than a few times. But anyway, after I do that, I sign up for how many feel like I can take. About a week or so later, they'll be planning on their end of things. The art directors will get together and they'll look at the artist pool, they'll look at the briefs and they'll say, okay, this has, I don't know, uh, a crocodile monster. Who's good at crocodile monsters? Oh, well, this guy did really good at this hippopotamus painting. Maybe he's really good at that. Okay, okay, well, we'll put him down for that and so on and so forth. They usually work based on a lot of times what they know artists can handle or not. They don't if they can avoid it, they don't like to go out on a limb per se by giving somebody something they don't think they can handle. And sometimes they're nice enough to even ask us. They'll say, hey, we were thinking about giving you this, but do you feel like you can handle it? And uh, they've been asking me that a little bit more recently, which I really appreciate because it gives me a chance to get some input about what pieces I get because normally I don't get to pick what I get. They do all the choices for me. So after that, they'll send me the briefs and that's honestly one of my favorite parts of the whole process is just when they send me the notes for the pieces, what they want each one to be, just because that very first read, as I'm looking down the list, I can start coming up with ideas for different pieces. Then I'll put together some sketches for them, which I usually do pretty quickly, like about 30 or 40 minutes each, just to try to get a good composition worked out, figure out what my color palettes are going to be. A lot of artists don't work in color for their sketches, but I prefer to do it that way just because I'm so bright and colorful, I guess. But I send in those, they pick out one that they like, or sometimes they have a few notes about changes I need to make as I move along. And sometimes they want to see updates as I'm moving because it's not quite where they think it should be. That doesn't happen too often, but uh, usually it's about a month or a month and a half after those sketches are approved that I have to turn in the final pieces. And then I'll get about another week of turnaround where they have to look it over internally, make sure it fits their brand, make sure there's no, no glaring issues in it. And then they'll get back to me with either a few more notes for revisions. I don't like getting revision notes, but sometimes it's warranted. You can get kind of uh, tunnel vision when you're working on a painting sometimes. It's always good to get other people to look at it and give their input, especially these art directors because they're trained to do that for the most part. But usually they just hopefully approve the pieces. And then about a month or so later, I get a paycheck from Fantasy Flight for the project. And then I don't know how much longer later I finally get to see it out in the wild and get to hold it in my hands if I'm that lucky. <laughs> that's always fun to do. That, that's about the complete life cycle, at least from my end. What card went in the process went through the most change, do you think, that you, you, that you worked on? 
I don't think I've ever had them like outright say this, these sketches are garbage. You can't use this or anything like that. Um, I have had a few pieces that had these sketches are all terrible. These aren't right at all. No, they're they're usually pretty generous and gracious about that. I mean, if it, if it might not be hitting quite what they had in mind, if if they know the artist well enough, they can usually trust them to take it to a good looking final, even if they're not. Yeah, it wasn't quite hundred percent what they were in, in imagining. But keep in mind, they got dozens and hundreds and hundreds of needs to look at so i don't think they get super attached to any of them yeah it's hard to think of anything that i've had major revisions on i did have some pretty big revisions on battle fleet where i had to change the shape of the flying saucers and because there's so many flying saucers in that image it was kind of a pain in the rear to fix that's one of the few times i wasn't completely in agreement there are a lot of flying yeah they needed me to change the cockpits on all of them oh no oh there's so many Yeah, that's a card that maybe could have had one more revision, to be honest. <laughs> so like, like the like the actual text of it, not the art. Like we've had some pretty broken battle fleet decks get out there in the wild. I had one for a while. <laughs> um, so that's super cool. I was honestly clueless about the whole battle fleet thing. I knew it was a good card. I didn't realize how brokenly good it was until I was at Gen Con and somebody explained to me. You know, you got one of the best cards in the game here. Like really, <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> so that's always really that, that must be like a huge win for you as an artist right like to get one that is a card people care about well in the sense that people might want to buy a playmat and help support the artist that way that's that's very nice yeah, I mean, yeah. they told me that there were those battle fleet playmats done in like fantasy flight and it was a really short run like only 20 or 25 units when i heard that i'm like oh wow i bet those are really in demand and i saw dollar signs in my eyes i'm not gonna lie but I'm just glad that other people get to finally use those yeah. and hoard it anymore. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and jump into the next yeah. question that we have here. So I think one of the really interesting things to think about is like, you know, working within the constraints that ultimately these, this art is going to be printed and most widely consumed on these like small cards, right? It's a really small format just for the art itself. So I was just curious if that affects your design process, if there are what the biggest challenges are for working within that constraint or and if there's any like unexpected benefits to it. One unexpected benefit would be if I make a mistake, it's less likely people are gonna notice if it's a really small little niggly thing. Like I don't have to super render everything if I know it's all gonna be condensed down anyway. So that has its advantages, even though I try to make it as detailed as I can anyway. The disadvantages, the aspect ratio doesn't really bother me that much, even though I prefer to work more vertically when I can. I'm pretty good at cramming everything into the composition if they tell me to. But uh, the most important thing, just with working at that small scale, it, it absolutely has to read well from a distance. And that can be tricky sometimes. You could be working up close on it and thinking, oh, this looks amazing. This is great. And then you zoom out and you make a tiny little thumbnail on your screen and like, oh, crud, this looks like garbage. And then you have to go back to the drawing board, basically. I hate when that happens. It's it's very annoying. Yeah. It's always important to when you're working to keep another window open with the piece on it at a really small scale to make sure that it's reading. Sometimes a piece looks completely different when you're zoomed in compared to how it looks zoomed out. That's one issue. That's fascinating. I've never thought I've never thought about that. One of the biggest issues is I work in an RGB color process in Photoshop and pretty much all digital artists do. But Fantasy Flight prints in CMYK which is a more limited color spectrum. So a lot of times I'll be working on a piece and it's really clicking. It looks great. The colors are on point. It's gorgeous and saturated just the way I like it. And then I do the CMYK conversion and it looks like garbage. All the magic's gone. The colors are washed out. I'm just <laughs> hanging my head in frustration going, no, no, no. Why can't they print an RGB? <laughs> it's a limitation with their printer system that they use. And it's hard for me as an artist just Mostly because if, if I weren't such a colorful artist, it wouldn't be a big deal. The, trend, the transmission wouldn't change anything. But there's a lot of times where I have to sit there staring at a piece I've been working on hard, turn it into CMYK. The colors are not where they should be anymore. And I have to figure out how am I going to make this work in CMYK? Because it's just the, the color spectrum doesn't go as far as RGB. So you have to figure out other ways to rebalance the colors in the piece to make it work. And that's super frustrating for me personally. But... That's just a limitation of the printing medium. I mean, a lot of printers work in CMYK. So that's one thing I need to learn more is how to manage my colors a little more carefully. So when I reach that stage of the process, it doesn't completely throw me for a loop. 
So some people notice when they buy my play mats or my prints, they're like, oh, wow, these colors are really bright. They're really vibrant. This is great. And I'm like, yeah, that's how it looked when I was working on it. That's not how it looks on the cards all the time. But <laughs> <laughs> they have a pretty good team at FFG that's able to sometimes make adjustments to pieces as needed. To, and they're a little bit more savvy with the whole CMYK printing process. So most of the time I, when I look at the cards, it doesn't look that different from what I do. They're pretty good at adjusting that, even though sometimes I send in finals thinking, oh, man, this doesn't look nearly as good as it did on my screen, but they're usually able to work it out. Well, you know, a big thing, you know, Steve, with Keyforge that has gone around a lot of times has been, will they release a digital client? And we want, and so with that, we wondered if there were, as an artist, do you think that there would be, that you would approach the design differently if Keyforge uh, were to become a digital product? Um, not overly so. In fact, I'd, I'd appreciate it quite a bit in that I'd be able to keep my RGB colors the way they are and keep things nice and saturated. One thing that might change in my workflow is a lot of these online TCGs, they animate their cards, or at least they want to be able to animate them. And to do that, I'd have to probably send in PSDs for my files. And that's tricky because my, my Photoshop files are all very, very messy with sometimes hundreds of layers. I'm really bad at organizing them. So I'm, I'm hoping. I don't know. I could clean them up if I have to, but the only other thing with that is that I have to push myself that much harder to make sure that my compositions are dynamic and that I'm not avoiding detail in any parts of the composition because people would be generally seeing the art quite a bit closer and at a higher resolution than they're used to. That being said, I, like I said, I'd, I'd welcome the opportunity to do that if that were to ever happen. They don't tell us artists anything about that stuff, so who knows what they're cooking up. I know you were fishing for <laughs> I want to jump in. So we have uh, a friend of ours, Exoquay, who's in our chat here on Twitch, and he's a big fan of your art and one of our Discord members. And he asked the question that maybe we could, if you don't mind. So he's wondering like what you're most excited about in the future for your career as an artist. I'm excited to get through my current backlog of projects and have some time to improve my portfolio because that's one thing I've been lacking for a long time. Because I thought this year that I'd have about March or April, I'd have some time off, some money saved, I could just focus on my portfolio. And then these projects come up that are just too good to pass up. And I, I find myself buried again under another load of clients. And, and I appreciate my clients. I love my clients. But I'm hoping to get some breathing room in the near future to improve my portfolio. Because uh, while I've enjoyed working for Fantasy Flight, there are definitely bigger dogs out there that I'm hoping to acquire as clients down the line. In order to do that, I, I basically need to revamp most of my portfolio to either fit the different brands of the companies I'm looking at. I mean, an obvious example would be Magic the Gathering. That's one of the big goals for anybody around my level. But I would have to build at least three or four pieces that are tailored to their style in order to get their attention. So that's something I'm hoping to be able to do this year. It's been a while since I've had the chance to do that. I guess I shouldn't complain about having you know so much work that no, I don't have... <laughs> time to work on my portfolio or anything like i said i really appreciate it all but hoping to get some breathing room soon and i would like to get involved still in production art for film or television down the line and there's different venues that i need to visit in order to start putting the feelers out hoping to get the chance to do that this year as well so fingers crossed but right now my portfolio is my main focus and getting it up to par for some more advanced clients in the board game industry but just to clarify, I love working for Fantasy Flight. They've been very good to me over the years, and I intend to continue working with them as long as I can. Thank you. Thanks for the question, too, Exoclay. Well, uh, you know, and on this kind of track about you, you know, you, what you like personally, uh, we wanted we wanted to know. Uh, I I am very uneducated when it comes to art. I'm going to be honest, but I want to know: Do you have a favorite piece of of just art in general? Uh, and also. Do you have a favorite card of yours uh, from Keyforge that you've drawn? And uh, for a third third question, do you <laughs> do you have a favorite card of another another uh, artist? Oh boy, well let's see. That one's stacked. I can't think of any one or two pieces that really stand out to me, just because I have so many different paintings that I'm inspired by. If anyone's curious or interested, if they go to my ArtStation profile. Um, my name on there is balance sheet. And if they look under my likes section, that would give anybody who's curious a good taste of what inspires me and what really interests me, mostly landscapes and really dynamic character pieces. But yeah, it's, it's hard for me to pin down just one artist as it changes over time. A lot of the people that used to inspire me when I was starting out, I mean, they're still good, but it, it does 
doesn't quite glow the same way it did for me before. In terms of my cards on Keyforge, I really liked working on Candle Unit, and I'm pretty happy with how that came out because when I got the prompt for that piece, I was just like, oh, wow, I could really do something with this. And I can go all freaking out, make it as detailed and glowing and pretty as I can. I love it when they give me pieces that I, I really click with, and uh, that was one of those. So I tried out a bunch of different techniques that I hadn't used before. And they gave you another busted card. That one's good. Oh, Candle Unit. I didn't know he was busted. <laughs> I knew he was good. I didn't know he was busted good. He's not Battlefleet busted, but he he's good. <laughs> yeah, that's always a fun card. It's a good card. I need to acquire a good Candle Unit deck. You know, it's amazing. Like, I, this is just... I think a lot of the way I'm personally enjoying art in Keyforge is just, like, sort of to let it wash over me. But I need to spend more time just, like, actually looking closely at the art. Because, like, when I just pulled that card up right now and looking at it, like, the beautiful high-res I have, it's really amazing. Like, all the details in the background and with the machine that I missed before. Thanks for that. Yeah, that's what I was going for with that one. When they give me the cards, they never tell me what the mechanics on the cards are. Sometimes I try to infer them if I can, if I can guess at it. But sometimes I'm completely wrong. In fact, uh, with one of the cards for Mass Mutation, Opposition Research, when they gave me that one, that one's already been spoiled, so I guess I can talk about it. They gave me the brief for that one, which was some Logos drones spying on some uh, Saurian soldiers. And when I heard the brief, I thought, okay, that's got to be some kind of, you know, look at your opponent's deck or his hand type card. And then when I see what the mechanic is, you know, your opponent can't read. Well, that's great, but what does that have to do with the arc? So sometimes I get pretty surprised. <laughs> I don't know. They might make changes to the cards on their end in between that part of the process. But for Candle Unit, uh, the brief that they gave me was kind of implied that he'd be getting stronger as he got more amber. So he's still a very strong unit, but it didn't quite work the way that I thought he would when I got the brief. Um, Candle Unit is one of my favorites. I really liked working on stealth mode. Yeah. Tech of our Pulpit was tricky, but he came out really nice. And uh, Burn the Stockpile from Coda. I think stealth mode is incredible. And also Library of Babel. That one I was, I was really happy with, partly because... Uh, when they actually put it on the card with the Logos frame and everything around it, something about the color palette for the Logos faction, it contrasts really well with the colors in Library of Babel. So when I saw that card for the first time, I'm like, wow, that looks way better than I remembered it. Sometimes stuff like that happens. That's like one of the other things I think is so cool about Keyforge that you don't get uh, in some other games. It's like because we have the concept of like Mavericks, where you get to see the art with like a different background. It's amazing how different like the card art comes across just because it has like a different colored banner or something. It has to do with uh, how the eye perceives colors, usually comparing the color to colors around it. So when you frame it a different way with different colors against it, it's always going to read a bit different. It's just the way the brain works. And in as much as I can, um, like say when I was working on Worlds Collide, I didn't know what the templates looked like for uh, the Saurians or Star Alliance. So I asked them, uh, hey, do you know what the color is going to be? on the border where the faction color is going to be so I can try to plan my pieces that way accordingly. Sometimes they know, sometimes they don't, but that's always helpful information to know just to make sure that the final product looks as great as it can. In terms of other artists, there are a handful that I really like. One of my favorites is a guy named uh, Quentin De Warren. He's done cards like uh, Prince Derek, Lava Ball, Lupo the Scarred, Healing Blast. I really like the colors on Healing Blast. What I like about him is the brushwork that he uses and a lot of his compositions are really strong as well, especially on Save the Pack. I have mixed feelings about that card mechanically, but uh, <laughs> he did a really good job setting up that composition. And the brush strokes just, I really love his brushwork. Other artists I like would be a lot of the Russian artists that they hire. I've been pretty impressed by uh, Grigory Serov. I really like his um, dust imp piece. I think he did a great job with the composition and the colors. And uh, the card Wretched Doll, the artifact. I know it's not good mechanically, but he did a really good job on the art, so I feel bad about that. <laughs> and that's just my perspective looking at these things. Um, there's, there's so many different artists, but I really like a lot of their Russian artists that they've been hiring. And again, Quentin de Warren, a handful of other people. I, I can't think of any one card that really stands out other than some of the stuff that Grigory Serov and Quentin De Warren have been doing. I hope people at home listening to this are pulling up some of these pieces on their, for 
us and probably most of the people who listen to this podcast are just like so mechanic driven, you know, try and play the game at a very high level. But it is really cool to just like spend some time to like, you know, really to look at and appreciate the art. And uh, I think that's just a really fun way to engage with it. So hopefully this podcast will be a, a good opportunity for some of these folks to check out uh, some of the cool, cool stuff that's happening in the art community. Yeah, honestly, I'd, I'd love to be able to rub shoulders with some of these guys, but most of them live overseas, so I doubt I'll get the chance to meet them. But it's been fun working on this project with them, even if I don't get to interface with them very often. It's also crazy when uh, one of the pieces I did for Call of the Archons, uh, Incubation Chamber, I think it was in Age of Ascension, they, I forget it was, the Harvester guy or something for the Martians, they asked him to use the same environment that I did for incubation chamber. So when I saw that card, I was like, oh, that's my incubation chamber. And this other artist had done his own take on it. And he did a really good job with it. When I saw that, I was just, oh my gosh, that's, that's my baby. That's my incubation chamber. It's always a really fun feeling when you see stuff that you designed be developed and built on. And in a lot of cases, they asked me to do uh, more environments, uh, buildings and architecture and stuff like that. At least they have been asking me more recently because they, they know I can do it. That gives me a huge chance to advance part of the brand that doesn't usually get developed right away. A lot of cases for a faction, they might say, uh, we have no idea what their buildings look like. So you figure it out. And I'm like, that's awesome. All right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's an interesting, I was going to say that it's an interesting thing about Keyforge as a game uh, is that it's so, because it's not an existing IP, you do have all these emerging characters like, you know, like you have Incubation Chamber into Xanth Harvester into like, I'd love to see the, that come back someday. Like he's kind of, you know, you kind of get this, uh, you're starting to get this kind of uh, picture of what the Crucible looks like, what the world is like. We're getting, uh, you know, a a series of short stories, I think, coming out pretty soon that will actually do some world building. And so I think it's, I love all this stuff. I think it actually, it adds a, a really cool layer to the game that i enjoy i don't i don't know if it you know i know that some people even even somebody who's mechanically minded i think that there's a lot to enjoy here and it adds a it adds a richness and it's like it's cool to see those characters come back that you really you know you really like um even like you know we're getting in mass mutations rad penny and i'm excited for rad penny to come bad penny has made its comeback yeah, I'm just waiting until they tell me that one of my pieces is coming back and they want me to do the next pass on it or something. That'd be great to de- develop something else. Please, please no mega battle fleet, though. You know, we don't need that. <laughs> oh, come on. I think everyone would love that. <laughs> I think you're right. That's hilarious. Uh, okay. So, I, I, you know, to, to your point, Alex, I'm really curious what your opinion is on it, Steve, is. I think that perhaps a lot of the people who even say things like they like, oh, I don't care about the art, I just like the game, like are still getting a lot of value from the great art assets in this game, even if they aren't perceiving that or able to like put that into words. So you're still absorbing it and enjoying it and it's colorful and it's fun. But I'm curious, what effect does bad art have on a game, do you think? And like, what's the effect of good art generally? And I know this is like super broad, but I'm just curious if that like uh, brings up any thoughts for you. Well, sometimes it's harder as an artist because you're that much more critical of other people's work. So if you see problems with art on a certain brand, you keep thinking, oh, I could have done that better or they should have done it this way or whatever. That can be frustrating sometimes for people who are less versed with that sort of thing. They might look at two different games and they say, oh, these, these, the art on these both look great. They can't really tell the difference when it comes to a real level of quality on it. If art's really bad, most people can tell usually. Um, I've seen plenty of games where mechanically this looks really interesting, but I am just put off by the artwork. And again, that's mean, and maybe that's not the case for other people. But I think on some level, everybody has a different spectrum of appreciation for artwork, and they might always be able to quantify it or voice it. They might not be able to tell you why why they like something. They'll just say, oh, I, I like this. And they can't tell you what about it is really resonating with them. But when you have more experience with art, that spectrum, I don't know if that's the right word for it, it's a bit wider. You can more easily quantify which brand is using better art in it. And again, if the mechanics are sound for most people, that's not a big deal. 
I don't play that many board games, unfortunately, because of where I live, I'm a bit isolated. And when I do play, it tends to be more uh, abstract strategy. Other than Keyforge, I, I really enjoy playing Keyforge when I can. But I prefer more abstract strategy games where I don't really want that much window dressing on it. It's all about the core mechanics of the game. So I can resonate with that. But if I had to play chess and all the pieces looked absolutely gaudy and hideous, and that would just drive me nuts. So in some cases for a game, I think it would be better to simplify or strip out the art than have bad art. The tricky bit is in a lot of cases, game designers aren't the best at uh, dealing with art for their own games. They're all about the mechanics. And when it comes to the art, they just don't have the right vocabulary experience to I mean, they might say something that, oh, I think this looks really cool, but anybody else could probably tell them that does not look as cool as you think it does. But they say, no, I really like it. Let's get this guy to do it. (laughs) Or he's like, oh, I got my uh, little cousin. She just graduated art school and I think she'd be perfect for this game. And I'm like, no, no, what are you doing? And whether or not people want to admit it, the art does affect the game. Even if for the mechanically minded, it's not as important. For average people, they want to see something that looks nice and that helps uh, build the community around these games. I mean, if Keyforge looked ugly, but it was still the mechanically sound game it was, then, I mean, it's not going to have nearly the same audience. So whether or not you care about the art, it does affect the brand and the popularity of that brand and the sustainability of it. So good art is important and it helps to be able to develop a more critical eye and be able to quantify why you like something you're looking at. Oftentimes the only way to do that is to try doing art yourself, but for some people that could be pretty tricky. Yeah, I think it's important to always take a step back for us and remind ourselves that yeah. by uh, virtue of the fact that we're running a Keyforge podcast, we are not the average consumer of this product, not the average member of the audience. So I think I think you're right. And of course, our as huge appeal, and it seems like now more than ever with just like thousands of games coming out annually that it's almost like you need to have it, you need to have great art or your game is just kind of lost in in the pile of the hundreds of other sound mechanic games. That's a very good point. It's like with uh, book covers, there's a lot of pressure to make sure your book cover is as attractive and engaging as possible because a lot of people will, that's the first thing they notice about it and that's what draws them in initially. If it's a great book, that's great. But there's, like you said, so much competition in the industry right now that anybody who's taking it seriously can't afford to cheap out on the artwork in order to stand out from the herd. That's very important. I'm going to be honest. I definitely choose a book by its cover. <laughs> I've had a few clients in the past where they brought me on to do certain assets for a game they, that they did, but the other assets I was just not happy with at all. So I have my name on some products that I'm not always super thrilled with. That gets frustrating sometimes, but <laughs> even if it's a really good game, if there's bad art anywhere in it, it for me personally, it throws it off. Just because it's so topical, right before recording this podcast, I played the game, a game of Carpe Diem online with some friends. That was a board game released in 2018, designed by Stefan Feld, who's like a very renowned, amazing designer. And the game is just like so good mechanically, but it just looks awful. And I really enjoy playing it, but all three of my friends I was playing with, they were just like, what is this? Like, this looks like a game from 20 years ago. And I really think because of that, it's sort of being overlooked by a lot of people. But I think for good reason. Yeah, game designers get really, really tough. But with Fantasy Flight, they got dedicated personnel to handle the art end of everything. So they're trained to do what they do. And that's what they do. They don't conflate that with any other responsibilities. So that's a big advantage to have people that can focus exclusively on that. All right. We're kind of nearing the end, but we just want to know, like, do you have a favorite? Like, I know you you said you have limited board game, card game time. Do you have a favorite board game or card game? Uh, There's an abstract strategy game called... And remember, FFG is listening. (laughs) Well, in that case, uh, Keyforge, of course. No, no. (laughs) No, (laughs) When I play whatever I want, personally, like I said, I really like abstract strategy games. There's a game called Hive that I really enjoy. It's like chess, but with bugs, but it's much, much better than it sounds. Anything, in in my case, where I'm in Mexico, abstract strategy games are a lot easier to play with people who can't read English. If I bring games with English instructions, really complicated ones, I'm not going to be able to get them into it. So anything that's (laughs) simple. But what I've been trying to do is get Keyforge decks in Spanish so I can play with the kids where I'm at in Mexico. And it's been a pain in the rear because they only sell them over in Europe. It's really hard to get them here in the States. They don't really have much of a presence in 
Mexico fantasy flight. So I'm working on trying to acquire more of those decks. I've got a handful that I've been able to get from the UK, but I like playing with the kids down here because number one, it gets them off their cell phones for a minute. And two, in order to win at the game, you need to be reading your cards. You need to be thinking critically. And that's, those are things that I want them to be focusing on instead of PUBG or whatever they're playing. So even if I could just use it on the pretext of improving their literacy, I love playing a Keyforge with the kids. When yeah. I can. yeah. Especially when it really starts to click for them and they realize that, oh, this card works with this card. And if I set this up, I can do this. And that's always fun to see when, when that gear clicks for them. But I honestly don't get Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, I don't get as much time as I want to play games, unfortunately, just with uh, my normal client backlog. And I'm usually, I've usually got like five or six people that I'm dealing with at any given time. But when I can, I like to get out and play with the kids and keep them engaged. They're some of the same kids that I used to work with when I was at a shelter, working at a shelter down here. So it's been great to continue to be a part of their lives and to share a bit of with them of what I do for a living. Wow, that's really cool, man. Honestly, uh, that sounds really cool. I wanted, I think we've kind of tried to drill into the point that Alex and myself are not art experts. <laughs> so I wanted to ask clearly if there's anything that you really wish we had asked. You know, if there's something that you wanted to take the opportunity just to talk about on this platform, I'd love to hear it. Well, one question that would come to mind would be, you know, what's the hardest part about being a freelance illustrator? That's a good question. You could ask that. I actually, one just came to me. What, uh, how do I phrase this? What would you say is the hardest part about being a freelance illustrator? Well, I'll be glad to tell you. Uh, it's learning how to manage your own time and manage yourself, being your own boss. And not, not everybody's cut out for it. And I'm honestly not sure I'm cut out for it. Sometimes I feel like I'd rather be working in a studio somewhere where I can have somebody standing over my shoulder telling me what to do. And I know that sounds really weird to hear, but... When you've been trying to be your own boss for a while, you realize uh, sometimes you just need people to be telling you what to do. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. There's so many advantages to being a freelancer, and I don't want to downplay it at all, but you have to learn how to motivate yourself, get yourself out of bed, get yourself in front of the computer, get yourself, put the hours in. And I'm sure any freelancer will agree with that. You need to be really, really good at managing your own time and not let distractions get in the way. And that's been one of my biggest challenges and setbacks as an artist over the past few years is being able to put in the hours and not get distracted. So I can think I've got enough now. I'm doing okay. I don't need to be pushing myself. I don't need to be super strict about my hours. And then things can kind of snowball and you completely lost along the way. So if anybody's considering this sort of thing, just be aware that you need to learn how to manage your own time and manage yourself. And also make sure to make time as an artist Whenever you're doing contract work, I have to always make time to do personal work in there as well. So I don't get completely drained and wiped out. And my also so my portfolio doesn't get too far behind. That's easier said than done when I have a bunch of big deadlines. I had to pull a really late night a couple nights ago just to get something done on time. And I'm still reeling from that. So time management is huge. And taking the time to do personal work also is very important. This is why I, I, I actually don't, uh, you know, I've never wanted to own my own business because I, I just know I'm not cut out for it. I need, I do actually need somebody standing over my shoulder saying, Alex, do your job or I'll just, you know, play Keyforge all day. <laughs> yeah, story of my life. Steve, uh, we are going to wrap it up here, but just want to say from all of us, I'm from our Discord and from us, we've all loved your art please keep doing what you're doing um thank you so much for coming on and go ahead and tell the folks out there in the interwebs where where you can be found okay what's my website again i think i forgot oh yeah balancesheetart.com all one word that's my main portfolio site but if anyone's interested in buying playmats they can find them at balancesheetstore.wordpress.com that's my temporary platform for selling those you can just send me an email through there if you're interested in anything but yeah check out my art station and then like i mentioned before if you want to take a look at what inspires me take a look at my like section there i got about 700 paintings that i really need to take a closer look at because uh, it's been a while but yeah that's those are the places where you can find me and we'll be sure to include all those yep. links in our show notes here so that folks will be able to easily find it and access it and definitely uh, would love to encourage y'all, if you can, to support the wonderful artists that make this game yeah. great. As always, my name is Jake. You can find me on Twitter at Jake Freed. That's J-A-K-E-F-R-Y-D. We are streaming this once again, once again on Twitch. So 
if you'd like to follow me there at the same name, you'd be able to tune in and, and join us for these podcast streams for the foreseeable future while we're all locked inside our houses. <laughs> I'm Alex Slotnick. Uh, I'm the Nick of Slots, hashtag 6418 on uh, Discord. You can drop me an email at nickofslots at gmail.com. I have a blog, which is linked in the show notes. Um, yeah. All right. Well, uh, we'll have to get Dan to send his audio file later for our traditional. You're not going to try to do the outro again? Uh, I'm not really ready for it at this moment. I think you haven't tried it, have you? Okay. I I have not tried it, but I'm going to have to. If I'm going to attempt this, I need to have something written out. So I'm going to attempt to write out. A few moments later. We're going to give it a shot. Uh, here we go. <clears throat> Archons of the Crucible, creation is happening. Art matters. Make sure you're seeing the interesting details. And as always, forge those keys. Oh man, that was awesome. That was like a Christian Bale Dark Knight style. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a little take on the Dan.